Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Iron Shirt Barbecue Company. Iron Shirt Barbecue is a barbecue caterer that is family owned by Glenn and Kendra Stoltfus. Glenn is also a past guest of the podcast appearing on episode five of season one. Iron Shirt Barbecue Company is a barbecue caterer focused on serving fresh, handcrafted barbecue and sides from their home to your event. Glenn has been obsessed with cooking slow-smoked, mouth-watering, tender barbecue for 15 years. The focus is on freshness and every sticky rib, tender slice of brisket, and bite of juicy pulled pork is cut, pulled, or sliced fresh at your event. Every cut of meat is dry rubbed and smoked with wood and natural charcoal for hours. Sauce is on the side and only there to complement the meat, not overwhelm it. Kendra makes all the sides by hand from scratch using only the freshest available ingredients. Their mac and cheese is loaded with gouda and sharp cheddar. The baked beans are swimming in bacon and brown sugar, and the creamy slaw has a secret ingredient that will keep you up at night, wondering what could possibly bless the slaw with such amazing flavor. I have had the absolute pleasure of having barbecue prepared by Iron Shirt Barbecue. Hands down, it is the best barbecue I've ever eaten. Glenn has been perfecting his craft for years, and he has the skills, tools, and team to provide the best barbecue experience for your event. Book them right now for your wedding, family reunion, graduation, birthday party, or simple cookout. Their food will make you happy. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue Company on Facebook and Instagram to see their menu, photos of their amazing food, and contact information for booking. You will not be disappointed. And if you mention that you heard about Iron Shirt Barbecue Company on the Diakonas, a Cops Calling podcast, you will get a 10% discount on your order. Iron Shirt Barbecue Company needs to be the caterer for your next event. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue Company right now on Facebook and Instagram to learn more and get booking information. Then mention you heard about them on Diakonas of Cops Calling podcast and you will get a 10% discount on your order. Diakonas of Cops Calling is a proud affiliate of Audible. Right now you can go to audibletrial.com slash diakonasacc to get a free 30-day trial. I personally have an Audible membership and absolutely love it. Audible is my go-to way to take in a book. As a family, you also use Audible on long trips to listen to books with the kids, and I personally use it when I'm driving, doing yard work, or have some downtime. Currently, I'm reading Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham Jr., and I just downloaded into my listening library 12 Seconds in the Dark by John Mattingly, the sergeant who was shot during the Breonna Taylor raid. Audible offers thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, including this one, plus much more. As an affiliate, Diakonasa Cops Calling gets a commission for each newly generated trial through the link provided. You can get a free 30-day trial right now. Just go to audibletrial.com slash diakonasacc. This link will also be included in this podcast episode description and can also be found on the podcast website at diakonasacc.com. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. This suspect committed great acts of sinful superiority, deciding he was divine and he had the right to snuff out the life of other people. He decided these officers were so inferior to him that he would murder them. She had said, hey, like when we had left, she said, what's going on there? And I just, I just kind of broke down and said, hey, I will let you know if you can promise that I never have to go back there again. 
It was almost like they were all waiting for me to get home. They all came running across the street and said, Ow, cops are looking for you, but don't worry, you know? I don't know your name. If I was a police officer, I would have a regular spot on my calendar where I could dump it all with someone I trust and be prayed for. This is Diakonas at Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And on this episode, I have my very first pastor on as a guest, um, and that will be coming up here very shortly. Hey, if you are tuning into this podcast for the very first time, I want you to know that there is a website for the podcast, www.diakonasacc.com. You can go to that website and learn everything that you want to know about the podcast and also see uh, several ways that you can support the podcast and the mission of each one of these episodes. Just a short and to-the-point opening for this podcast episode. And before we get to the guest for this episode, we are going to do the So Woke, It's Broke segment. The State University of New York, or SUNY, is this week's selection for So Woke, It's Broke. And that is for inviting the murderer of two police officers to speak at their college. Details at the top here for this segment come from Spectrum News 1, RochesterFirst.com, and PoliceOne.com. So I do want to talk about the suspect and what he did just for a little bit before I get into what SUNY did. And if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that I do not like to give airtime or name the names of suspects on this podcast. I don't believe that their actions or their uh, content of character deserve uh, find them deserving to have their names named and be given uh, more airtime. So he will be referred to as the suspect throughout this segment. But here's the thing. He's a murderer. And uh, because of that, I don't think his, his name deserves any more airtime than it's already gotten. But who I will name are the officers he murdered. And that is Officer Joseph Piagentini and Officer Waverly Jones. In 1971, the suspect and two accomplices called police to a Harlem housing project on a false call, and then they lied in wait to ambush and kill those two officers. These suspects were part of the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Party. The sickening irony is that while these suspects were part of these groups, uh, the suspect himself was responsible for violence against a black officer, that being Officer Jones. The first shot from the suspect came from a distance of six inches, just about six inches from the back of Officer Jones' head, killing him instantly. He was shot three more times, leaving behind three children. Officer Piangentini was simultaneously shot and fell to the ground. A father of two daughters, he laid on the ground and pled for his life, but the suspects took his service weapon from its holster and, uh, and shot him to death with it. Officer Piangentini was shot a total of 13 times. Three months after Officer Piangentini and Officer Waverly were killed, San Francisco PD Sergeant John Victor Young was killed by two of the same suspects. Officer Jones' weapon was recovered from the suspects after they attempted to murder another police officer. In that case, the suspects and his accomplice drove up beside a police car and attempted to open fire on a sergeant inside with a machine gun that was in their possession. 
the gun jammed, and they were arrested. The suspect and his accomplices responsible for bank robberies, bombings, and other attempted assassinations of police officers. One bombing took place at a church during a funeral for a different officer. As late as 2016, this suspect showed little to no contrition or responsibility for his actions. And during that parole board interview in 2016, he claimed he didn't recall shooting Officer Jones in the back of the head and said that while he couldn't recall it, that's what the court documents stated. In 2019, the parole board again denied the suspect's parole, but then reversed its decision when the suspect appealed. I could not find why the decision was made to parole the suspect. The widow of Officer Piangentini, Denise Piangentini, pleas and petitions to the patrol board were ignored and he was released in September of 2020. The suspect fancies himself a political prisoner and I have found nothing he has written or any interviews he has done or given where he remotely takes any responsibility for these murders or crimes or asks for forgiveness. And yet, SUNY saw fit to invite the suspect to give a speech to their students just a little bit ago on April 6th. And it was entitled History of Black Resistance, U.S. Political Prisoners and Genocide, a conversation with that suspect. The statement from the college, as they got considerable pushback about this, uh, the college released several statements. Uh, one of their statements said in part, quote, we do not support the violence exhibit- exhibited by the suspect's previous crimes. And his presence on campus does not imply endorsement of his views or past actions. However, we believe in freedom of speech. SUNY Brockport, which is the campus which the speech or talk was held on, quote, has routinely held speaking events involving controversial speakers from various backgrounds and viewpoints and will continue to do so. These conversations are uncomfortable. They are meant to be. They're about gaining a new perspective, end quote. In another statement from the college, as they continued to face a lot of pushback for inviting the suspect on to speak, Uh, They said, quote, students will be curious about this event, which should be acknowledged in conversations with them. For some students, if the event proceeds in person, the possible advent of large numbers of police on campus may be another traumatizing event, end quote. A murder on campus, not traumatizing. Police officers on campus, traumatizing. Give me a break. The speech was ultimately moved um, from an in-person live event to a Zoom event due to the safety concerns at the college and to prevent the large numbers of police on campus that might traumatize people. I, for one, am a proponent of the First Amendment. And while I find it morally repugnant to allow the murder of police officers to speak to college students, I can hear the argument for doing so. However, SUNY is not a proponent of the First Amendment unless it goes in one direction. Back in March of 2021, they suspended a student for espousing conservative beliefs on his personal social media account. What was his suspendable offense? Stating his belief that males are males and females are females. SUNY suspended this student for violating their, quote, inclusivity doctrine, end quote. In addition, they demanded he take remediation training. And when the student declined, they sent out a campus-wide email scolding him which facilitated him receiving threats. Additionally, in May of 2018, on another SUNY campus, open mic night was all about First Amendment rights until a student gave a speech about liberal intolerance on campus, which drew a warning from staff 
that she was making other students, quote, uncomfortable. The student was warned if she did it again, she would be banned from open mic nights. Students were reportedly, quote, deeply hurt by her speech. Wait a second. According to the SUNY statement about inviting this cop killer on campus, they are all about, quote, controversial speakers from various backgrounds and viewpoints, end quote. And they're all about, quote, conversations that are uncomfortable, end quote. And all about, quote, gaining a new perspective, end quote. That's what they said about inviting a cop killer to speak, but that's not what they're all about when someone wants to espouse views they don't agree with. So this is not about free speech. SUNY could not care less about who they make uncomfortable or deeply hurt when it comes to a cop killer giving a speech. They didn't care when law enforcement leaders and their families of Officer Jones and Officer Piangentini urged them to cancel the speech. So I reject the idea that this is a First Amendment issue. If it was about freedom of speech, the same weights and measures would be given to all who speak. There would not be any favoritism given to one over the other. No, this is an issue about morality. Recently, this quote from President John Adams back in 1798 was shared with me. Quote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. End quote. That is, our Constitution and its amendments are useless if in the hands of immoral people. And sure, all people are immoral. But in the hands of an immoral people who don't care about being immoral. And allowing a cop killer, or any murderer for that matter, to have the ears of college students is morally reprehensible. Why would we give heed to someone like this? Why would we give the airtime to a person who murdered, who to my knowledge has never taken responsibility for his actions, who has never asked for forgiveness, who whines about being a political prisoner, and has shown no remorse for his crime, yet shut down and vilify someone who questions the tolerance of the liberal left or stands firmly on the truth that men are men and women are women? Why would we give notoriety to a suspect who shot an officer in the back of the head from six inches away, and then running after ammo took Officer Piangentini's gun to keep riddling the officers with bullets? Why would SNUY give this suspect a voice and yet ignore the voices of these officers' widows? In fact, in his talk, the suspect whined that there are those, particularly in law enforcement, who didn't want him to speak. He opined about spending nearly 50 years in prison for simply fighting white supremacy and capitalist imperialism. He also stated in his speech, quote, let's make that point especially clear. The struggle always has been and always will be one against white supremacy. Why? In order for a white supremacy to exist, right to be, it, it, it has to what? Make itself superior to any other people, superior to people of color. And therefore, they have to make other people inferior. End quote. The lack of self awareness in this quote is staggering. This suspect committed great acts of sinful superiority, deciding he was divine and he had the right to snuff out the life of other people. He decided these officers were so inferior to him that he would murder them, including an officer from his own race which he claims to be fighting for. According to one student who watched the talk, uh, the suspect shared little to nothing about his crimes and the murder he committed. 
instead focusing on his opinions about racism, white supremacy, mass incarceration, and other similar topics. And so, S-U-N-Y is this week's So Woke It's Broke segment winner. Or loser, if you'd like. For proving that First Amendment is only important when immorality needs to be heralded. For giving notoriety, time, and status to an unrepentant murderer. It is a microcosm of our culture as it seeks to attract and lift up evil while turning its back on truth and what is good. I, for one, think we need to call these things out for what they are, to stand firm against them and, most importantly, proclaim truth loudly. And the most important truth and hope we can speak about is the truth of God. And to that end, my guest on this episode is a pastor. A pastor who has an amazing, God-orchestrated story that took him from a life of crime to serving the church. So let's jump into that interview right now. My guest for this episode is Pastor Nate Lott. Pastor Nate is the very first pastor I've had on an episode here on Diakonos Cops Calling. I really appreciate him coming on. He is currently one of the pastors at Mission Church here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the church that myself and Lauren attend, uh, along with our family. And he has a story and a testimony of God's work in his life, uh, from a life of crime to a life changed by grace through faith in Jesus. He is here to share his story. And I'm very glad to have him on the podcast. Pastor Nate, welcome to The Box. Anthony, it's so good to be here, bro. So good to be here with you, man. I am honored to get to spend a few a few moments with you. I as well. I'm honored to be uh, with you. And, uh, you know, you're, you're one of my CrossFit buddies. Dude. That we kind of we kind of poke fun at the the whole CrossFit. Well, Gary and I have been poking fun at the whole CrossFit thing, but uh, I actually have quite a few friends that are in CrossFit. You are one of them. So, if you got something to say, just just get it off your chest right now. Listen, listen. I just find it incredibly interesting that two men who don't participate in CrossFit and have some strong opinions about CrossFit can't seem to stop talking about it. <laughs> Which is the irony of ironies, isn't it? I mean, and let me just set the record straight. Like, I know the, the cliche term, the box. Uh, actually, people who make fun of CrossFit use that term more than CrossFitters do. I mean, it is a term. It was a, it was a general term describing uh, the general shape of most CrossFit gyms. Because most CrossFit gyms are in a warehouse, in a facility that is just essentially bare bones. Okay. And so that, that's where the term came from. But we just call it the gym, bro. It's, okay. the, it's the gym. You know, like when you go, I, to, like you go to the Y, I, 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 go, I, go, I go to CrossFit. So. And you said that with such a condescending attitude, too. Uh, <laughs> I would say this. I do wish I would have done a little more homework because I've been around CrossFit uh, sure. workout, like people that do CrossFit together, athletes, as, as I'll, I'll call them. Yeah. Um, and... The lingo and the terms, I should have done a little more research and, and pulled out some more lingo and Probably. terms because it, it's, it's, it's a magical experience to be around two people who are heavily involved in CrossFit. To listen to them talk, you literally cannot understand what they're talking about. But to be fair, Gary and I did say it's probably just like people being around cops, like people who aren't cops being mm-hmm. around other cops. And like these guys yeah. are talking about things that we don't understand. It's, it's just like anything that consumes a majority of your time, not just your physical time, but mental time, uh, emotional time. Like it, it is a uh, CrossFit is, um, they would claim 
that they are interested in the whole person, okay. right? From sickness to wellness. Okay. Right? There's that continuum of taking a person from unhealthy to healthy, right? And so uh, even when you uh, coach or train um, or run a class where people are working out, all that, all the training and all the things that led up to that moment, um, you know, CrossFit takes very seriously, you know? And so they, they are a part of even like legislation against like companies that are promoting unhealthy habits and these big like food companies that are just mass producing unhealthy food. So they're not just fanatics who are just about like throwing around a heavy barbell, although that is the, you know, the mantra or the stigma rather. Um, you know, they do, they do, uh, most CrossFit gyms, you know, care about the whole person. How long have you been doing it? Um, I've been, I've been coaching for five years. I've been, um, actively participating as, as an athlete, as <laughs> I even, I even shuddered before I said that it just, just came out, but I've been working out. I've been doing CrossFit for about six, six years now. And, and here's the thing, like everyone I know who are in CrossFit do appear to be in very good shape. I, there's there's no denying that what they're doing works. Um, so yeah, Gary and I we're we're two dudes that are probably just too lazy to go to CrossFit. Um, I will say this too, that the the although his schedule is pretty pretty rock solid, my schedule right now is all over the place. Mm. Um, but uh, so discipline, uh, maybe that's why I should go to CrossFit. It would probably bring me some uh, some much needed discipline in the physical fitness area of my life. Yeah. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's great about CrossFit too, is that for me, um, it provides me kind of a third space, you know, as a pastor, as, as a dad, as a husband, a lot of my time is around people who think like me, talk like me, act like me, are kind of heading in this generally the same direction as me. And so, um, I'm, I kind of, I kind of live in a bubble a little bit, right. You know? And so it gets me around people who don't, think like me aren't heading in necessarily the same direct or even value the same things that I value. Although the one thing that we kind of all have in common isn't just CrossFit. It's a form of community right. that I think is the most magnetic part about the, the sport Yeah, is that it, it promotes a community that is, I think, indwelt in all of us, that we all desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Right. And I mean, uh, it, it's really neat to watch people come into the gym unhealthy, you know, um, not in a healthy place weight-wise or disease-wise, and then get to a place of health. And uh, what that does for the person is, is really cool. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to what you said, because I think you can even, you can see that in the church, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, a family of families uh, within the church. And then, you know, for, for myself in an employment uh, aspect, when I retired from Lancaster City, had that year off, um, I, I really missed that like camaraderie and community. Mm -hmm. um, and so it has been kind of cool to get back in. Uh, it was very cool to have a year off. Very cool. Uh, but it's, it's been also uh, cool and encouraging to get back in mm -hmm. and just be, just have that level of com camaraderie again. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, like you said, to put you around people that don't have the same values as you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that maybe believe other things who, who aren't believers and just, um, you know, be able to, 
you know, share the gospel with people, talk to people about Jesus and about what you believe. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's an encouraging environment to be in in and of itself. So, um, well, anyways, uh, we'll try to lay, we're going to try to like, we need to pick, pick some other groups of people to pick on. No, man, I love it. Actually, I, I, (laughs) it's drawn me in. You got, you got me in now. Now now I'm tuning in to the point of like, man, I want to hear what they say next, you know? Because you know what? You know what's going to happen. It, it's it. You're going to inevitably talk yourself into a visit, and then once you come and you see and have fun and experience yeah. the camaraderie and the community that we have there at the at the box, if, if you won't you won't leave. If Gary and I would ever come to uh, where you do CrossFit, uh, and the people there would know, uh, we would probably get destroyed. Uh, we would get destroyed. No. They would they would probably destroy us. No. I mean, we would be puking by the end, I'm sure. Uh, they would put us through. No, see, that, that, that's the point. The goal of your visit would be to, to you, you scale based on ability okay. so that we all start together and we all finish together. That's, okay. that's the goal. Okay. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's still, it's still a lot of fun to make, make fun of <laughs> oh, you guys. Oh, man. <laughs> I make fun of CrossFitters. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's just some ridiculous things out there that people do that, that is not indicative of the sport at all and just it's funny i mean and i think you have it with any community you have people on the fringe in the extreme that do some really funny weird things i was actually uh i someone just texted me today and it kind of reminded me of of some goofy things police officers do that i need to talk to gary about that i think we could we could definitely go after certain elements within law enforcement oh for sure for sure but um anyways i'm i'm really glad you're here um, and, and before, before we get into your story, I did just kind of want to say something, um, you know, unfortunately right now in our culture, uh, people tend to write other people off or, or cancel people or rail against people. If that person even has an interaction with someone they don't agree with, or they engage with someone they don't agree with. So I would just like to say, you know, for those who don't like this podcast or maybe even uh disagree with things i say or or uh or vehemently disagree with some things i say or stand for on this podcast i would just like to ask that you not hold that against pastor nate you know he's he's here um he's not here to endorse every little thing i've said uh in past episodes or in future episodes but he's here to share his testimony and and one thing that pastor nate and i do agree on um, is the desire to lift high the name of Jesus um, and to show the power of God at work in other people's lives, uh, which exhorts other Christians. Um, it also encourages those in law enforcement, the times where I've had people on who have engaged in some criminal activity and who have had their life changed by grace through Jesus. Um, it encourages myself as a law enforcement officer and other police officers who I've talked to. Uh, because it shows that people can change because many of us who are in this profession begin to believe that people can't change. And that's mm. just not true. Um, so it, it helps to um, encourage law enforcement. Um, and really, Pastor Nate's story is a story of being a child of darkness, a, a child of the devil, and by grace, through faith in Jesus, becoming a child of the light. Um, a child of God, and and the one verse um, I had to look up exactly where it was coming from, where it came from. But in First John three ten, um, it says that by by this the children of God and the children of of the devil are obvious. 
Uh, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And for sure, Pastor Nate comes from a story of not practicing righteousness because he didn't know God, and now he does know God. He has a relationship with his heavenly Father through Jesus, and and um, and so he's he's here to share that story, share that testimony. Um, and I'm excited to have him to do that. And so I think you know where I like to start with these is just kind of jumping into your. Uh, childhood, you know, where did you grow up? Um, what kind of family did you grow up in? What did your early childhood look like? Yeah, that's great. I appreciate all those things you said too, Anthony. It's um, it's it's good to it's good to kind of lay that out at the, at the outset. Um, I appreciate I appreciate your heart and all this, man. It's been great to, to kind of watch this progress for you. Yeah, and uh, get get to where it's at, man. I, I know the Lord's using you in spaces and places where you desire Him to, to and uh, it's it's just neat to see all that He's doing. So. Yeah, so I um, I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania. I'm not a native to Lancaster. Um, Reading is it feels like a different planet. And Why only, is that? It's only like a half hour away. It just it's just so different. Okay. You know, um, even now, like you drive through Reading, and it just it just you just feel that you you know you're not in the same place. You know, um, you know, even the city that I grew up when I grew up in Reading, it was a much different city than it is now. But but I grew up in Reading. Um, I. Um, I lived there until I was 22. I've okay. been in Lancaster. I'm 42 now, so I've been here 20 years. Um, and so the family dynamic that um, I kind of was born into, uh, young parents, you know, my mother and my father were uh, young and just passionate about their lifestyle. You know, my dad was in a in a band trying to make it. You know, my mom was, my mom actually, she um, she was valedictorian really good student in high school, had aspirations to go off to the Air Force and do great things. And, and then she ran into my dad and they both kind of, you know, uh, bad company corrupts good morals, right? She, they kind of bounced into each other and, and started a life together at a really young age. You know, my mother got pregnant when she was 19 okay. with me um, and had me when she was 20. Um, so, you know, I was born into, into that lifestyle. My dad was constantly on the road. Uh, he ended up landing a really solid job. Actually, one of the things that I admire about my dad um, is that he held the same job until they closed the plant for about 35, almost 40 years. Wow. Um, and so pretty pretty crazy to think about. But so it wasn't long, though, um, after my mother and my father had me and my sister that their lifestyle kind of caught up to them and, and things got, got, got the best of them. And, um, you know, they separated pretty early in my life. I actually remember, um, it's just funny things you remember, right? Yeah. I remember um, my dad waking us up in the middle of the night. I was three. My sister was one. And I was going to maybe closer to four. Um, but being woken up in the middle of the night and my dad saying, hey, you got to pack some things. Your mom's nowhere to be found. I, I got to take you to your grandmother's for the day because I have to go to work. Okay. And uh, that was like the start of like this spiraling that kind of, kind of was the the next you know dozen years or so of my life yeah i always thought it was a shame that usually the first uh memory people have is a negative one because the first memory i have is a negative memory as well um it's such a it's a it's a shame but well the the brain the brain keeps score of those things yeah you know and uh you know we have we have those those ruts those mental places that uh are hard to get rid of yeah so was your, did you kind of grow up with your uh, grandparents then, or did they mainly take care of you or? Yeah. So shortly after that, um, it, 
it wasn't long that uh, my mother got custody of me and my sister. She kind of came, she, she didn't disappear. She just had left uh, that evening to, to be with a, a, different, a, a different guy. Gotcha. So she left my dad for somebody else. She actually ended up remarrying him or, or marrying him. And so it was my, my stepdad. And then uh, she got custody of me and my sister. And so we lived with her for a period of about four years till I was eight. Okay. Um, and in that period of time, um, you know, I lived with, I lived with her and my stepdad and uh, saw my dad sparingly. Um, I don't actually, I don't remember seeing my dad a whole lot through those years. Um, I remember all the, the trauma of being in, in the house that I was in. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as you know, you're eight years old and, and obviously by this time you're in elementary school and stuff, how did the, the trauma of, you know, the house you were growing up in, uh, how did that impact you and, or did it impact you and, and what started happening in your life as you were in school and, and yeah. started getting older? So the, that period of four years when my, when my sister and I lived with my mother, um, you know, I, for the most part, my sister was super young and, you know, there was some, there were some really, you know, negative things that, that, that took place in her world. But for the most part, um, I endured a period of, of about four years of a lot of physical, emotional, sexual abuse at the hands of my stepdad and my mother. Mm-hmm. And they both were um, heavily involved in substance abuse. And I, I do remember there just being numerous times, you know, just trying to interact with my mother. And she was, she was just not in her right mind, mm-hmm. you know. And so at eight, um, it kind of came to a tipping point. Uh, another one of those moments that I remember quite vividly. Uh, my grandmother, my mother's mom came to pick us up for the weekend and my mother was, she was, wasn't acting right and really upset my grandmother. And so she had said, Hey, like when we had left, she said, what's going on there? And I just, I just kind of broke down and said, Hey, I will let you know if you can promise that I never have to go back there again. Wow. And she was like, okay. (laughs) You know, like my grandmother was like, a deer in headlights, like not sure what, what I was going to say next. And so I just kind of like blurted out everything that was going on. And uh, I didn't have to go back, um, pr- praise God. And it turned into this big deal, a uh, big court case, district attorney, like all sorts of legal ramifications took place. And my mother ended up going to jail along with my stepdad. Uh, he, ended up, he did 19 years. My mother did 11. Wow. Now, did you... Was there some sort of plea agreement reached, or where did you have to testify in court? And yeah, I was sitting on a court stand at eight years old, wow. um, testifying against my mother. Yeah, one of the last memories I have of her on this side of the fence essentially was turning as they that when they delivered the verdict, they, they took her out of the courtroom and she turned around and she said, "She said thank you to you." Yeah, really. Yeah. Why do you think she said that? She was free. I think she was trapped. I think okay. she, she was a prisoner of, of substance abuse. He was very abusive towards her as well. And, um, you know, this was, this was 1988. Right. I mean, these types of things were just like off the wall, you know? I mean, it's, it's unfortunately more common now, right? You hear about these things all over the news, probably because we just have access to things more often now. Probably. You know, but at any rate, it was just, it was a big deal. Right. And it just rocked everyone's world. You know, my family. And, uh, but I think she, I think she just felt free. Okay. You know? And, um, and do you like, do you still see your mom and dad 
today or so my relationship with my mother and my father today is is very um it's it's sparse it's 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 still broken um you know i haven't talked to my dad uh we're going on year 11 mm-hmm. and i haven't said a word to my dad and his choice you know i'm actually honoring his request he he asked that i kind of leave him alone and so kind of where we're at with that my mom love her i have no i was even thinking about it on the way over here tonight like i i can genuinely say with full confidence that i have no ill feeling towards her i've fully forgiven her i mean i've even done some things like it's not even it's not even all about her even you know like when she came home after 11 years we had a pretty rocky relationship and i said some awful things and did some awful things and in reaction to the hurt you know and so so it's not even all her like I have genuinely come to a place of, of forgiveness for her, but, um, you know, she, she lives in Reading, you know, our relationship is at a level that she can handle. Mm-hmm. And at this point it's, it's text messages. It's, it's a, you know, it's maybe yeah. a, a Facebook message or two once in a while, but, but beyond that, it's, it's not much more. Yeah. Um, so you're with your grandparents then, um, was that, uh, generally a, a good environment for you to be in? Yeah, for the most part. I remember once once I got out of that environment, I kind of like my childhood actually started. You know, like I gotcha. I kind of started being a kid at like eight, nine years old. Um, my dad had gotten remarried in that time. His second wife really didn't want much to do with me just because I, you know, I was I was a problem. Mm-hmm. Like I was, you know, I was I was a lot to handle. You know, all of that I went through and I was just a terror. You know, I just wanted to run, go, you know, I was just on the loose. And so she, you know, she didn't deal with all that. And so she was like, you know, I'm not, she told my dad, you're gonna have to you know, do something about that. Right. And so his solution was, well, you can go live with your grandmother, my, my mom's mom. And uh, so that's what I did. I lived with her in this, in the heart of the city uh, for a number of years. And I just remember she had to work. Right. You know, she worked full time. And I just remember being nine, 10, 11 years old, you know, cooking my breakfast, you know, get myself home from school, doing my homework running the streets, just kind of hanging out with my friends, you know, riding my bike, you know, running all over the place and just doing my own thing with, with little supervision. Now, was your sister there as well? So my sister had a really good situation. I'm really thankful for her. Um, just the Lord, I feel like the Lord protected her. Um, you know, she lived with my dad most, if not all of her childhood okay. a- after, after that, that incarceration took place. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, you're, uh, yeah, I, I mean, just listening to you talk, um, you know, obviously a very traumatic upbringing uh, was, was seen, experiencing a lot of things uh, that had an effect on you. How did that manifest or, or what types of things then did you start getting involved in as a teen and as you got older? Yeah, so um, there was a period of time uh, my, my dad's second wife left him. And so now he's post second wife. Okay. You know, uh, divorced twice, and he decided he wanted to have a relationship with me. And so I lived with him from 13 to 15. And uh, in that period of time, he got remarried a third time. Wow. And his third, by this time, though, this, this third spouse kind of took the same ap- approach like Nathan's too much. He's very, you know, he's headstrong, he's stubborn, you can't parent him. And you couldn't. Like I, I, I had developed calluses and a way of thinking and a way of life. So I was essentially left to my own formation. I had formed my own worldview in a sense, you know? 
And there's very little you could you could do to, to to break through that, you know. And so, living with my dad and living with his third wife, I you know I was beginning to get in. You know, I was stealing cigarettes. It's kind of where it started, you know, stealing cigarettes from my dad and kind of raiding his his, his liquor cabinet, and and then it started into other substances. Uh, once I got into or like early teen years, and and by the time I was 15, though, um, he had decided that I had to make a decision. Either I was going to kind of follow the rules of the house, which were super strict in my opinion and like like oppressive, and you weren't going to do that to me, or you got to get out. And so I was like, I'm out. Do you think anything when you were in that that uh, mindset uh, that you just described? Do you think there was anything that could have gotten through to you uh, during that time to kind of correct? your behavior or do you, you were just at this point where I literally, I just do what I want to do apart from saving grace. Sure. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. I, it was, things were happening at such a fast pace, you know, and I was kind of being confronted with having to make very rapid decisions. You know, I went to multiple different schools. I lived in multiple different, I mean, I had, I sat down at one point and thought through all the addresses that I've ever lived at. And, and I got to 40 plus addresses at one point and just, you know, so, you know, things were just happening so fast that I don't, I don't, I don't know that anything could, the one thing that did break through was I recognized a way of life that I was attracted to that I went after, which was, you know, the bad kids, the, the, the fast kids, the kids that were, you know, you know, um, popular for all the wrong reasons, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I quickly adopted that lifestyle and I, I adopted the lifestyle of just being kind of like very, um, uh, bold and willing to do whatever to get attention. And, you know, if, if it got me attention, if it got me in, you know, I was willing to put myself in, in risky situations. So you're in that, when you were in that, um, you know, that early, early teens, petty crime stuff. Were you having interactions with the police that early on or did that come later in life then? Uh, most of it's later in life. I, you know, I had, I, f- I felt like I had done everything I could to kind of keep my nose under the radar as much as possible. You know, uh, even when I was in high school, you know, I had, you know, I had found some safe relationships that I knew I could trust if, you know, um, and you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't want to be on anyone's radar. You know, I wanted to be able to just fly beneath the radar as much as possible. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of deep relationships with people. And so I was always kind of, you know, I wasn't always top of mind for people, even with certain relationships and friendships that I had through, through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, once I got to 15 and my dad get, kind of gave me that kind of fork in the road ultimatum, and I chose to go out on my own, you know, I reached out to my aunt, my dad's sister. She was only eight, nine years older than me. She had, okay. her, she had her own place. And I was like, hey, if I, get a, if I get a job and pay you rent, can I live here? And she said, sure. So I've been on my own since I'm 15, Okay, essentially. So what were you doing work-wise? Work uh, I got a job at Wise Markets. I think it was my, one of my first jobs. Okay. Yeah. And were you working full-time or just working after school? Or were yeah, you work, going to school? As much as a work permit during high school okay. years will, will, will allow, right? So, yeah. So I got a job there. And... and uh, Kind of got myself through high school at that point. Yeah, and if I remember your story right, um, there was an incident then that that happened because you ended up going into the military. 
which, which I find fascinating. I want to ask you more about that. Like, how do you, how do you live this lifestyle? And anyways, there was an incident that happened right before you got into the military where you did have that police contact. Can you, can you talk about that at all? Yeah. Yeah. So I graduated high school, uh, 1998. Um, and, and let me just say this, like, you know, leading up to going into the military, you know, I was doing, the, I was doing more harm to myself than anybody else. Gotcha. You know, you know, partying and, and substance abuse and just, skipping school and just not caring about, you know, and like I had, like everything was like right here in front of me. Like there was no thinking about tomorrow or next week or next year. It was just what, what can I do today? You know, kind of thing. I wasn't parented, you know, I just wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a a disciple of any one parent to think like you should. So anyway, so, you know, fast forward to graduating high school, you know, I knew I had to do something. And um, I had met with, uh, you would get a recruiter come to the high school my senior year. And uh, there was a dean of students who loved to hate me, I feel like. I was always in his office. And he just was like, he was the one guy that was just always like, you know, Nathan, you don't, if you don't fix this, you're just going to, you're just going to be a nobody. You're going to, you know, and he was just the, the one guy that was always saying those things. But in the back of your mind, you always like, I, th- I think he believed in me and saw me what I couldn't see in myself. Because always he always took time to like make sure I knew what he thought of me, you know. Right. Besides the fact that I was always in his office for breaking some school rule or something like that, but the I remember him introducing me to the recruiter and talking to me about this potential career in the military, and I thought, man, like sign-on bonus, like I get to travel, I get out of this place, you know. I was like, yeah, I'm I'm for it. I I, I can do that. I'm not going to college. Like I wanted to get out of high school as quickly as possible. You mean to tell me I got to go go back and learn? Like I was like, college is not for me. So the military was like the logical solution, and I didn't want to live with my aunt anymore. You know that was right. that was not an option, and I wanted to be on my own. And so this was a way for me to kind of establish some sort of roots. You know, so I didn't go all in though. I was like, you know what? Maybe full time army might be a tall drink at this point let's do national guard so i did pennsylvania army national guard to to start okay and um and then right before you got into that you went something ended up happening that almost derailed that yeah so i was uh i just on the verge of graduating high school and i was enlisted my senior year which meant that i was a pre i forget the term they use it but it was a pre 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 boot camp kind of enlistment for seniors in high school where you're, you're enlisted, you signed a contract with the military. You just have orders to go to boot camp once you graduate. It's like a commitment. Gotcha. So I had all that in place. Um, and then in May of 1998, uh, I was hanging out with a bunch of, bunch of kids from the neighborhood at a, at a, one of the kids house. And, um, we were just kind of hanging out, smoking and joking and getting ourselves in, in, into some trouble. And one of the kids brought a firearm and uh i mishandled that firearm and it ended up discharging into one of the kids kneecaps and uh i at that point i I just took the position listen it it was actually a drill weekend i remember it you know i had to go to drill it was a friday and so i had to report to indian town gap for the weekend for drill and i this was a friday afternoon i was like guys that's on you i'm out so i bounced i just took off got my bike and just took off um, went home, got myself together, 
got my ride up up to Indian Town Gap, did, did the drill weekend, came home, and it was almost like they were all waiting for me to get home. They all came running across the street and said, "Now, oh, cops are looking for you, but don't worry, you know, they don't know your name or anything. Like we we, we didn't tell them anything." I was like, "What the heck?" So when you were at Drill Weekend, this is crazy to me. You end up being involved in this. You go to Drill Weekend. What? How did you even concentrate at Drill Weekend? Or you're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's on my mind. I'm like freaking out inside. Like, what's going to happen? Did I do this? Is this reality? Oh my word! You know, because up, up until that point, I, you know, I had told myself I wasn't going to go. This is ironic. I wasn't going to go down the same path as my parents. And so here I am. You know breaking the law in a pretty significant way. Right. And so I decided during school at Monday, I was at school all day Monday, just, just chewing on it, chewing on it, chewing on it. It was just tormenting me, you know? Um, and so I came home from school, went to the police station, turned myself in and, and just said, Hey, like, I, I know you're looking for someone, you're looking for me, you know? And, and, and so I kind of uh, dealt with it that way. It's interesting that it was tormenting you so much. Was it just tormenting you because you were just looking over your shoulder constantly and you like didn't want that feeling? Or what what was it that was tormenting you about it? Yeah, I don't think it was guilt. I wasn't I didn't feel guilty about what, what took place. It was more of a, you know, I I didn't want my life, you know, I developed a comfortable lifestyle and I didn't want that affected. You know, I didn't want to have to deal with conflict in that way, you know. And I think also, too, the fact that I was on the verge of leaving for boot camp, graduating high school, you know, I was like, man, like this is this could really change the course of a lot of things. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it all just hit me at once. And so I turned myself in. I co- fully cooperated. The parents didn't press any charges. You know, the parents, I mean, the parents knew we were just a bunch of dumb kids making mistakes, you know, and so they, they didn't press charges. And through the process of being assigned a juvenile probation officer because I was, I was still under 18. I was literally a week under 18. Wow. So I was a juvenile. They assigned me a juvenile probation officer and he had to do a whole like profile of like my life, who I was, where I come from and all this, all these things. And I remember up to that point. So that's 18. I hadn't seen my dad since I'm 15. Okay. My dad was, uh, served with, um, what, what's the term when he has to show up for court? Uh, Probation for court. He had to show up to court to be. There. Oh, a subpoena. Yeah, he was subpoenaed. Gotcha. He was subpoenaed to show up. So I go walking into the courtroom and see my dad for the first time in like three years. Wow. And so that hit me. I was like, man, I wonder what he's thinking. But then the judge kind of went through, uh, kind of a, an explanation of like, well, I'm going to believe that you just kind of stumbled a little bit here. You're graduating high school. You're heading to the military. By the looks of it, you know, um, we had essentially had to drag your dad here. You know, you, you had a pretty rough life. You know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna give you a, a soft pass on this one. The parents are impression charges, so fines and costs, a six month pro, uh, juvenile probation period was all I got. Wow! And so I, I paid I paid the fines in full that day, and uh, you know I left for basic training a month later. Wow. So you go to uh, basic training. Um, and again, this was for the National Guard, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania National Guard. Did you do four, four years or was it two? I was almost at my four-year mark before I was discharged. Okay. And 
was it honorable discharge or? Um, it was supposed to be an, an honorable discharge um, because of the uh, the, the negotiated uh, <laughs> okay. situation, but it ended up being a dishonorable dis- discharge. Okay. Yeah. And um, do you want to talk about that at all? I mean, it's pretty simple. I, you know, I did three years, was in my fourth year. And so at that point, I'm 21, almost okay. 22. And, um, you know, that 18 to 22 period of my life was a whirlwind of trouble. And I was looking to get out of Reading as fast as possible. So I was attempting to go active duty, switch my component to regular army, and um, had to go back through the process of uh, MEPS, the physical, the, the whole, the whole bit, and um, unfortunately, I was unable to to pass a, a drug test. Okay. And so, um, obviously, all that gets documented, and um, I had to deal with the the shame and scorn of of having to look my commander in the face and hear hear about that, and and so, you know, I was discharged at that point. So even when you were in the National Guard, you were engaging in all kinds of substance abuse and but you were still able to make your appointments get to where you needed to be when you needed to be and um do do all that did that give you a feeling of control or or power like hey i'm i'm able to manage all this or was it just how you did life yeah i mean i i just learned to survive okay. like it was just a survivalist kind of mindset you know that period of time you know i i got my own place in reading i was renting a house i had roommates um, you know, we were, we were living a very, just a very dark lifestyle, you know, and, and, uh, just kind of doing whatever, whenever, however, you know, we really didn't have much, I didn't have many rules, you know? Um, and so I was, I was an adult, I was free. I was, you know, the, before basic training, I was, uh, I wasn't an introvert, but I wasn't like super flamboyant and like charismatic and like aggressive. When I came, whatever took place in in boot camp, just the the freedom, the training, just the environment, the sobriety, the order, the structure, like it just it just turned me into this bold, like strong willed, like determined, very charismatic, very flamboyant, very out in front. Like I you know, I was I felt bulletproof at times, you know, and I I kind of came home with that mindset. Yeah, it's super interesting because you you hear people going into the military, going through a boot camp type um, environment and gaining a level of discipline that actually pulls them out of that type of lifestyle. And for you, it kind of did the opposite. It kind of like just emboldened you, uh, made you, like you said, feel a little bit bulletproof and kind of pushed you further into that lifestyle. Would you, would oh, yeah. you say that is correct? 100% for sure. And so then after you get out, after your dishonorable discharge, what's, what's that like? Are you working or are you just, you know, what, what are you doing? Yeah, at the time I was uh, transitioning, um, I was, uh, I lost a job and I had moved in with a bunch of roommates and I was in the process of looking for a job. And one of the mutual friends that uh, was a friend of my roommate was in the process of, uh, building a second location to his business. It was a cellular, wireless kind of cell phone, pagers, beepers. This is back in 
2002, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and so he was putting a second location in Lancaster. And so he was, he was like, I, I need someone to, to manage it, to work it. I, I can't be in two places at once. You know, you're looking for a job. Would you be willing to, to commute to Lancaster to work the store? And I said, sure, let's do it. And so I was commuting um, October, November 2001 into 2002. Uh, I was commuting back and forth between Reading and Lancaster, working in his, uh, in his business. I eventually moved down here in January of 2002. And uh, that's, I've been here since. So that's, that's kind of how I got to Lancaster. And when you moved to Lancaster, were you living in the city? Yeah, I lived over on West Orange Street. Okay. Um, and then, you know, how long did you work in that, in that business? Yeah, the, the, the second location didn't last very long. I mean, he, um, so the situation was, it was a urban um, clothing and sneaker store okay. on Queen Street. And he was friends with the owners who were building this kind of urban kind of cultural store that sold sneakers and clothes. And, but it was, they also went so far as to like, they had live DJs come in the store and it was just, it was a very urban kind of setting, which was very popular in the inner city. But the, all the stores that they had had these little booths where they would sell like um, anything random, you know, but he was being, uh, he was offering uh, that mutual friend of mine to put his store inside of these sneaker stores. Gotcha. So you can come to the store, you can get your sneakers, your clothes, your outfit, your cell phone, you know, like it was all like a one-stop shop. Right. So I was managing inside that store. And so um, I ended up uh, meeting a guy who was working for the sneaker store who had a room that he rented to me. And so that's how I moved down here. And uh, I live in the city for... Criminally speaking, were you involved in anything criminally once you got here to Lancaster? Uh, not initially. I think initially, I mean, yes, I guess you, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, uh, being a part of the lifestyle that I was in, you know, um, you know, I would, I would say I wasn't a criminal because I was just, I was just, I was just participating. I was just partying. I was just hanging out. You know, mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, um, but eventually um, I, got into um, some illegal activity, um, got involved with some guys who were, who were involved in some illegal activity um, and uh, began to build a reputation for myself legally in Lancaster because, um, you know, like silly things. Like I, um, I abandoned two vehicles and refused to pay the, the, the fines for them. You know, I had helped a guy get a car, put my name on, on the note, and he abandoned the vehicle, and they couldn't find him because he went by an alias. And so they came looking for me because I'm on, I'm on the title. Right. So just silly things like that, right? Um, you know, I was, I was uh, those are the things I was getting caught for. Those are the things that were being exposed. But there were some un also underlying things that were going on that I wasn't getting caught for that, mm -hmm. was, that was kind of going unnoticed. That was a part of my lifestyle. Combine that with the fact that I began to build a reputation for myself in the city as a DJ. I was always in the nightclubs. I was at a, at a pretty solid core of, of friends and a group of people that I was, um, I was in relationship with. And, and so I was, from, from, from my perspective, where I, where I was in Reading and where I was at that point, like I was, it was like a, kind of like riding the wave. And I was enjoying, enjoying it. Like I, I enjoyed my sin. Yeah. You know, I really did. Um, and it wasn't until I came to Christ that I actually realized it was wrong.
<laughs> right. You know, um, and, and develop that, that, uh, that conscience. But so, yeah, I was, I was definitely involved with, uh, with some, so I ended up in 2004, I ended up, um, doing a short time in jail because all those fines and costs caught up to me. And I remember a constable came and visited uh, where I was living, and uh, he knocked on the door, and I opened it, and I was like, "Yep, and I knew, I knew, I knew you were coming," kind of thing. And so he's like, "Well, you willing to come with me?" And I said, "Well, I have no choice. Let's go." So yeah, I remember going to the district justice over on at the corner of uh, uh, North North Queen and uh, Walnut, mm-hmm. and the judge didn't want to see me. The judge was like, he looked at the, the docket and was like, send him, just take him over to the, you know, Lancaster County Prison. So, how long was your stint then in County uh, Prison? Super short. Like, I talk about it, it's like 25 days, you know, like. Was that the only stint you ever did in the prison? Only, only time. Really? Yeah. And it was horrible. Yeah. It was awful. It was the lowest point of my life up to really? that point. Oh, my word. I was miserable up until that point. Oh yeah, I was miserable. You know, um, I had a really, I had a really good, good friend. I had a really good person in my life at the time, who's now my wife, and uh, uh, yeah, she was, uh, she was there for me when when no one else was, and and uh, she helped, she helped get me home quicker. Okay. And uh, she's 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 a good person. I did not realize that she was that you guys knew each other. Um, because what year would have that been? Yeah, 2004. We met. Okay. We met in uh, 2002. Okay. And started dating, and um, that was 2004. Okay. Now, was your wife, your now wife, was she a believer back then? She was. She would say she was not. Okay. She had. She had been exposed to the gospel. Okay. She had been exposed to church in 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 her childhood and and at different points through her life, but she never made a a, a genuine profession of faith. So, um, what was your DJ name? Well, I, that's a funny, it's a funny question. I didn't, like, I didn't, um, and I'm going to mention a name here and you're going to know like, the kind of circles I ran in, but like, I didn't, I, I wasn't into like a name. Like I was just like, okay. dude, like, just give me a job. Let me show up and let me do my thing. But, um, I remember one day I went up to, uh, the record spot, um, to buy records from DJ freeze. Yeah. And him and I were, were, were pretty good friends at that time. I mean, acquaintances, not like we didn't hang out a whole lot, but we knew each other well enough to, he, he got me jobs and I'd buy records and we would, would uh, you know, talk quite a bit when I went into the store. But I recall one day he said, listen, you, you got to have a name. And I was like, freeze, I don't, I don't have a name. So he took my records, took a sticky note and just wrote N and eight on the sticky note. Okay. I was like, that's it. That, that's it right there. N8. That, that's my DJ name. He's like, that's brilliant. I was like, oh, great. So, so it was DJ N8. It was okay. nothing fancy, you know, but. You know, for those that don't know, DJ Freeze, which, what was his real name again? Something Rowe. Raymond Rowe. Raymond Rowe has since been convicted of murder. He actually uh, was convicted of murdering a school teacher who taught at Conestoga Valley. I'm trying to remember how long ago that was late nineties. Yeah. Long before I ever knew. Him. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I like that wasn't even, I mean, he was, he was, he was a good dude. Like, I mean, 
relatively, right. relatively speaking, you know, when I was interacting with him, he was a business owner. He was. I'm trying to remember what 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 year he he did that. I think they, um, I think it was like I, I think it was 90s. Like 95, I, I, 96 yeah. rings a bell. Um, and uh, just recently, within the past two three years, they used DNA and and crazy uh, and arrested him. Crazy. Um. So, yeah, so I was going to ask you, like, your interactions with him. Did you ever, like, were you ever, like, there's, there's something off with this guy? Nope. That's crazy. Nope. He was super cool. Wow. Always upfront, honest. I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he was, he was, he was a community influencer. Yeah. I mean, he no, was, he was, he like, was super popular and well like known in the community. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't just a DJ. Like, he, I mean, he was an advocate for, for, for a lot of things. He was, a, you know, was, um, you know, he's very much part of the urban culture and revitalizing just the, the urban arts and, and, and flair of the inner city. And so I wonder if any of that was driven out of guilt. Like if he was just like, you know, it's, it's just interesting people like that who can do something like that and just live life. Well, you know what they say, the, the best place to hide is out in the open. Right. Yeah, that's true. So DJ N8, N8. that was, that was you. Yeah. Um, and you would have been like rolling around in the city work, you know, working in the city, doing things in the city when I was on the job. Oh, your boys shut us down at the Conestoga, the Caribbean Breeze, uh, Miguel's numerous times. See, and those are all places I know. Those are all bars that eventually the the city succeeded in shutting down. They were they were problem yep. areas. I mean, Miguel's Miguel's was a problem every single weekend, yep. and Miguel's finally got shut down after I think we had a double or triple homicide outside of it one night yep. uh, while I was on the job. And that that finally got that place shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, Caribbean breeze. We had all kinds of problems there. Yep. Um, the Conestoga. Now that's actually in Lancaster Township, but at that time the city patrolled Lancaster Township. Yeah. That, I mean, those are all places I was at. But if you like, I cannot say that I know know you or ever remember seeing you or talking to you or dealing with you um, as a police officer on the job. But I think you told me that you remember seeing oh, me I do. at least. Oh, I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're very sure about that. I'm very sure about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I remember when uh, coming t- to church and seeing you for the first time, I was like, "Oh man, like, I know him. Like I've I've seen him. I've seen him like at work. You know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's super super interesting. Because when you're when you're when you're out there like running the streets, like doing what you shouldn't be doing, like. I want to, I want to know what you look like. I want to remember your face. Right. You know? And so like a lot of us, you know, people in that lifestyle know, know you more than you know them, you know? Right. You know, and, and can, can pick you probably out of a lineup a lot faster than you can probably pick us out of a lineup. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tried, I worked hard in the city uh, early in my career to memorize faces and names because generally I'm really bad sure. at that. But um, yeah. And I felt like people... I felt like when I was out of uniform, people generally wouldn't pick me out. But now that I say that, there were there have been several times where I've been off duty, where I've been made, if you would, and and even like followed or like you know just I it puts me on guard because I can tell people know know what I do for a living. But yeah, that's just super. It was wild to me when I fir- when I, the first time I heard your testimony to know that you were engaged in that lifestyle in the city, and I I didn't. Like when I walked in and saw you, I didn't, I didn't put two and two. Yeah, two I, mean, I never really together. had 
any specific Inter- run-ins or interactions right, with interact. police officers. You know, I and I wasn't like a, I I didn't um, despise or disrespect police officers. Like, I, I you know, I, you, you have a job to do. You know, and I and I knew that, and I and I would have been able to articulate that. And it wasn't more. It wasn't like a, I am out to to get you. I'm just out to do what I want to do. So your yeah. attitude towards the police was more like, I just don't want to be caught. So I want yeah. to be under the radar. Just, you stay over there. I'm going to stay over here. Do my thing. Like, Now, did you ever go through you know, thoughts in your mind? Like if I get pulled over or if, I, if I'm doing this and I get stopped or whatever, I'm going to run. This is where I'm going to run. Or like I'm going to fight. Or did you ever have thoughts like that? No. Do you think generally if you would have been stopped by the police, you would have just cooperated? I mean, I've been pulled over. I was pulled over. I was, you know, I, I had interactions with, you know, normal police interactions, right. and things like that. And I was always trying to be respectful. Like, I, you know, I don't know where it came from, but in my mind, it's like the least path of resistance with a police officer is just be respectful and just get through it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I think the the few times that I've been pulled over, like, you know, I wasn't trying to, yeah, to create more conflict, especially, you know points where I wouldn't have wanted my car to be searched. Right. You know, or anything like that. So, yeah. And so when you talk about some of the stuff that you were involved in, that you weren't, that was under the radar that you never got caught for and everything, would you expand on that at all? Or you don't want to? No, I mean, I don't think it's, I'll I'll just say this. I, I, I've experienced enough and felt like, feel like not feel, I know I've done enough that I, I could have been in jail for a very long time. Gotcha. And for whatever reason, God saw it fit to protect me from that, you know, um, not take me down that, 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 that road. Um, there's guys that I know that are and have been in jail for a very long time, people that I've, you know, cooperated with or um, did business with, you know. Um, but the details aren't, aren't as important as the fact that, like, I know, looking back, the lifestyle that I was in, the things that I've done were wrong, um, um, deserved punishment deserve justice and um you know i i have to live with that you know i believe they're forgiven they're covered by the blood of christ and you know i can i can talk about them freely now to the point of bringing glory to jesus right you know in respect to it Mm -hmm. but you know um yeah have you ever gone back to that dean at at school that was always on you and talked to him and just that would be good. That would, that would be. That would I was be just good. curious if yeah. you ever had. I have had some people in my life recently that I've run into that are like, "Wait, what? You're a pastor? <laughs> Whoa! Tell me that story." Right. You know, and so it's it's kind of cool. You know. Yeah. But so how? Like, I I want to get into the story of how you got saved. Um, how, how did you hear the gospel the very first time? Like. How did how did that happen? Yeah, so I never never came in contact with a born again believer. The the term, the phrase, you know, um, salvation, gospel, like those words weren't like weren't even like they weren't even on my radar. You know, I, obviously I knew about Jesus. I knew there was a Bible. Like I knew general things that like, I think the you know any American or Westerner knows. You know, for the most part, right? There's parts of our world where they don't know those things, but. You know, but for the most part, you, you got to be pretty oblivious in America to not know at least the name of Jesus, right? Right. So my my spiritual IQ went that far. Okay. Right. And I wasn't an, an atheist or you know an, um, an agnostic. Like I was 
you know, I, I, preached, I preached a sermon recently where I described my position was, was the category of none, like N-O-N-E, like I was a nun. Like I, I didn't have any religious affiliation. I didn't want any affiliation. I didn't want negative, negative or positive. I just, I just wanted to be like neutral, mm-hmm. right? And so that's kind of where I was when I first heard the gospel. I recall uh, in 2004, the summer of 2004, um, my wife and I, we were dating at the time, just decided that we were going to try and get things together, get our own place, start to kind of be an adult, you know, a little bit, just because like the, the, the little jail experience was like enough to be like, oh my, like I, I got to make some changes. You know? okay. And so for me, the changes were like a form of morality that I could kind of fabricate, have a job, like don't screw up, you know, pay your bills, you know, keep quiet you know, cut your grass, like, 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 like the, the, those are like the, like the, the depth of morals that I could kind of like figure out. Right. So we got our own place and I was looking for a job. And I remember walking down Manor street and walk, I walked into the front office of Kunzler, the hot dog factory. Yeah. And they, they were not hiring people off the street up to that point. They were only working through temp agencies. I wasn't looking to get a job through a temp agency. I'd done that whole thing, and it was just, I was over that. I wanted an actual job, and I was hoping to try and secure something that was, you know, good pay, good benefits, that sort of thing. And so I walked in off the street, and the lady was like, actually, we we are looking for a position. Like, great, I'll fill the application out. So I filled the application out, and it was for third shift sanitation. So they're, they're a USDA-controlled facility, which means no production on third shift. Production comes to a halt after second shift, and they spend the rest of the evening cleaning the whole plant and getting it ready for the next day. So that was my job. I worked on a crew, and I was like, this is great. Like, hanging out with a bunch of dudes. We got the whole plant to ourselves. They kind of lived the same lifestyle I did, and so it was kind of nice. You know, they, they, they talked like I did. They acted like I did. I was getting paid decent money. And for the first time in my life, you know, I was able to, like, keep my nose clean you know, kind of keep myself under the radar. And, um, you know, it was, it was a decent job. So about a month later, another gentleman gets, gets hired or gets brought in through a temp agency to work on our crew. And um, he comes in with this charismatic, like funny, bold, happy, joyful kind of personality, kind of stocky dude. And like, you know, it was just like, he was, like rough at times you could just you could tell like he you know he has a story kind of kind of thing but like he was just something different about him and initially what was different was the fact that he sat in the break room and read his bible that was weird All right he would be in the locker room telling us we were all sinners and you know <laughs> we, we needed to, we needed jesus and i was like what is this this guy's from a different planet like what is he talking about so i um you know i befriended him I would give him a ride back and forth to work and I got to, I got to learn his story and man, the similarities between him and I were uncanny. Like parents, similar childhood, similar lifestyle, similar. And, but he was, he was just happy. He was happy. I said, what are you so happy about? Like your life's a mess. He's like, dude, I have Jesus. Like Jesus has changed my life. And I was like, like, what do you mean? You know? And so like it it started this this relationship of just like inquiry, interest on my part, but like 
dude, you're bizarre. You know? And I actually tried to, like, get him to, like, slip. Like, dude, don't, don't, don't you want to... You know, let's 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 go to the bar after after our shift, and you know, like that's what some of the guys did. You know, after third shift, they'd go and then go home and sleep. And he was like, "No, man, I don't I don't do that anymore, man. That's that that's the old me. I don't I don't do that." And I was like, "Man, it's all right." So it was like that for for you know from August of two thousand four to February two thousand five. Wow. And uh, so he, but he would he loved me. He became my friend, and he didn't want anything from me. He didn't want my lifestyle. He didn't want, he, he wasn't like, a, a, he wasn't a, a popularity metric for me. He wasn't, a, a, he wasn't a, an obstacle to climb. He wasn't like, it was just, it was genuine. Like it was a friendship like I never had before. Like he liked me. Right. And he just brought things out of me that like no one, no one ever has. Like he brought it like a measure of laughing and frustration. You know, he was like, he was, he was annoying, you know? And like, it was, it was a, it was a relationship. Like I learned like how to work through like conflict and like there was nights where we argued and like it was, it was beautiful. And, um, I remember you know, him sharing the gospel with me all, all the way through all that and letting me know that like he knew what I needed. And, uh, in February of 2005, um, we were, we were working together one night and he started asking questions about, you know, my mom and my dad and, and how I felt about them and, 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 and their lifestyle and how it affected me. And, and for whatever reason, like I started breaking down. Mm-hmm. I remember crying and say, like, dude, I was like, dude, like, like enough, like enough. And there was something going on inside, inside my heart. Like it was like, it was almost like, <laughs> you know, the Grinch, like my heart started to like grow, you know, like, right. and I felt guilt and shame like I've never felt before ever. Interesting. Even though he was asking you about your parents and how you felt about them, you were feeling, you were feeling guilt and shame. Well, what he was, what he was revealing to me was that I was, I was, I was, um, I was turning out just like them. Mm. And I was like, whoa, like I am no different than them. And I lived my whole life to that point, just being angry at them. How could they, why would they, Take from me that which, you know, like, I am where I am because of that. I blamed everything on them. Like, and, and I only do what I do because this is the hand that they dealt me. You know, and I was living a life of anger. And I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. And I think the Holy Spirit, I believe the Holy Spirit, really enabled him, like, the ability on a relational level to ask, ask the right questions, say the right things, and be the right kind of friend that I needed at that time. Yeah, and so February twenty first, two thousand five. He was like, it was we were working together, and he was like, you know, talking, and I started breaking down in that moment, and he was like, dude, like Jesus can fix it all, and I was like, I remember my my response was, listen, I don't know if you're right, but I know something's got to change, and so if you're telling me Jesus can fix it, like, let's go. And so I prayed with him. Okay. And, right uh, there at work. Right there at work. In Kunstler's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I run home and, and uh, you know, I, I get off work that night, run home and run, the, run, run in our apartment. And Christina, I got saved last night. And, you know, she's, we're, we were like ships passing in the night, right? Like I'm coming home to go to bed. Right. She's getting up to go to work. 
and she's in, you know, getting ready for work. And she's like, okay. Like, I was like, no, no, you don't understand. Like I got saved. I remember, I remember standing with my back against the sink, looking into the bathroom, telling her like, like, honey, I got saved. Like, like I got saved. And you probably didn't even, I didn't know what that meant. You didn't even know what it meant. I had no idea what that meant. I was just like, I, like, I now know, like, I, I, there's, there's a place where I can get answers. And we're going to church. We're, we're, we're going to go, we're, we're going to his church. She knew Dan. You know, she knew him and he had, he had been a friend of, you know. And so she knew, well, you know, kind of up to that point what was going on. And uh, so we went to his church and it was perfect. You know, it was perfect for me. You know, it was inner city, um, you know, predominantly charismatic, Hispanic for the most part. But that, that's, I mean, I'm, that's a, I'm a city kid. Yeah. Like, I, went, I went to a church where there were people, where there was, it was a community of people that I'm used to and familiar with. And, and it was an incredible experience. Just passion and energy and the gospel and forgiveness. And just like people were just like, like letting go of things. And like, it was just like, it was just raw. And mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. Like, I didn't even know any, any of this existed. Right. I was like, this is incredible. And they loved me. They, they they embraced us. They they welcomed us. And and you know we we uh, yeah we kind of just fell headlong into just embracing this walk with Jesus. My wife got saved. Uh, so we were dating at the time. Uh, she was my girlfriend. She got saved. You know a week or two later. Um, you know during a Wednesday night service. And uh, and yeah. Two thousand five. Two thousand five. How. I mean, this, this is a pretty broad question, actually. Um, I don't even know how you want to break it down, but how, how has the gospel changed your life? What did the gospel do for you in that moment when you got saved? Um, obviously, life is still a mess, you know, still trying to work that salvation out. But how did it, how did it change your life in that, in that moment and, and the years going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's just a simple, simple word. It was, it's, it's been a journey. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, I, you know, I laugh. Like, yeah, I didn't know what it meant to get saved, but I knew something changed, right? I knew something was different. Like, I, 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 it was palpable. It was tangible. Like, like Jesus was is real. Like, it's not just, um, it's not just this fictitious emotion or this, 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 this invisible kind of kind of substance like it was it was real it was tangible like my life like it was altered and i felt it you know and so the gospel you know showed me my need to um have a have an answer for what was going on in my heart mm-hmm. so it was it was the holy spirit's you know it introduced me to the spirit of god which then introduced me to the reality of of who i was and what i've done and my need to reconcile all of that, you know, but it wasn't, you know, God is gracious. God is, God is good in the sense that he, he doesn't just slide the solution across the desk, you know, like a judge and say, you know, like he, he welcomes you in and comforts you and, re- and, and doesn't, there was no expectation of like, I needed to have it all figured out, you know, and I did, I, cause I didn't, right. you know, like, you know, I couldn't explain the gospel to you, you know, maybe even for quite some time. Right. You know, but I knew that I, I knew that what had taken place, what God had done had radically changed my life. And yeah, I knew it. And I think that I, for 
you know, for me, that's one of the many things about the gospel that makes it so powerful. The fact that you don't need to be at a certain point to repent and believe. No. Like, that's the point. The point is that there is nothing that we can do to receive that. You know, it's by grace through, through faith. And, you know, my favorite verse that I've said over and over again on this podcast, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's it. That's it. And from, and from there, like, you know, God doesn't want you to be perfect coming to him. The whole point is he's perfect. Um, and in his perfection and, and when you repent and believe and become his child, that sanctification, that process of, of working out the mess of our lives mm-hmm. begins. Yeah. I mean, um, we had to unravel a whole lot after yeah. that. You know, I was living with my girlfriend and, you know, we, we had no, we had, we, oh, oh, marriage. Oh, I guess. Do, do you? <laughs> like, it was like all these like newfound things started to like, you know, I, you know, I, I've said this quite a bit. Like, I, you know, I didn't desire to get married. I didn't desire to be a dad. Mm-hmm. The gospel changed all that. Like, I love my kids. Right. You know, I love my wife and I'm so thankful for, you know, all the things that, you know, God is, I mean, God, like, here's, it's going to sound silly, but God even changed my, like, appetite for food. Okay. You know, like, just like silly. Everything. Th- everything, everything changed. Like, everything changed. I mean, I, part of that was, you know, sobriety, you know, like, like dealing with, with uh, a, a new way of living in that way as well. But, but like, every, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Every, everything changed. And it was, it was, it's hard. Yeah. Like anything new. But man, the church, man, the church was there for me. The church, the church became my family. Mm-hmm you know, and really um, opened the door to a new way of living that, man, um, I'm so thankful for. So at what point then did you start feeling the call to get into ministry? Yeah. Yeah, so the church we were a part of, you know, was pretty aggressive from the standpoint of like, listen, you, you like, you serve the Lord, you get the work. Like, there's things to do. Like, like we're, we're a family and families work, you know? And so, um, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a good church, man. I love, I love, love those folks. And they, I mean, they did a lot for my, you know, my formation and helping me understand the gospel and exposing me to, to different ministry and, and, and exposing me to, you know, relationship and different things like that. Um, I would say after a couple of years, um, I, uh, I became just really passionate about ensuring people like me had an opportunity to hear truth. You know, I was, that's one of the things, you know, in answer to your question, that's one of the things that gospel has done for me is set me on this course of like, I am just like, I'm in love with truth. Like, it's objective. Like, God is ordained and is sovereignly ruling over boundaries and parameters of creation that like establishes truth. And like, for me, like, you know, even I think about an earlier question you asked, like, what what could have broke through, and really like been a help to me as a youth, would have been confronted with something more objective than I had ever experienced. Everything was so fluid and subjective that nothing mm. was ever substantial. And Jesus provides something substantial for me, and so like I just I felt that early on, and and um, started to put myself in places where I could be used. You know, um, I remember my wife and I were. Um, we we were uh, leading our young adult ministry. It was called Cross Culture. 
It's like, you know, teens crossing into this new lifestyle and, and new age bracket and, and new way of living. And so it was like this, this crossing over kind of, kind of idea. And so we provided a ministry to young adults at the church, and my wife and I led it and loved it. I mean, we just loved providing an atmosphere for, for people. We loved showing hospitality to people. I loved kind of, you know, breaking down God's word with people and learning and growing and just having, you know, deep conversations and discussions. And it was through that period of time that I was like, you know, like God's, God's doing something and he's putting a, a passion in me. It's kind of like a, a spark that was lit and has been growing ever since. And I've been unable to ignore it. Mm-hmm. I tried for a little bit, <laughs> but I, I thought, man, wow, like, okay, well, well, what do I do with this? Well, I turned into pursuing a four-year degree at Lancaster Bible College. So I went to, went to uh, get my bachelor's there and um, became more exposed to a more formative way of, of understanding truth and more orthodox Christian thought and just good theology and, and um, growing in my ability to, to communicate that theology in a practical way. And so through all those things, God started to like draw me closer to the idea of, of being a leader. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that I, I don't. I, just, I wasn't necessarily feeling a call to pastoral ministry. I was. I was convinced that I was being called to be a leader, mm-hmm. an influencer, and um, you know, used by God in that way. I kind of, as I began to be more discipled and grew in my understanding of what that, what that calling, what that passion was, you know, it's, it's manifested itself into pastoral ministry at this point. And um, when when did you officially, you know, uh, get or gain that pastoral title and and become a, a pastor? I, I don't even try to. Remember. Yeah, so I've been on staff at Mission Church now, going on four years. Okay. So I was part time since December of two thousand eighteen. Full time since uh, October two thousand nineteen. Right. Um, and so I, um, so we had moved on from that church after four and a half, almost five years mm-hmm. and we were looking for a new church. And the re- you know, part of that reason was, you know, we just, my wife and I, we wanted to find a church that, um, you know, was more geared towards and focused on discipling families and just had, just had deeper roots. There's nothing yeah. wrong. Initially, there was nothing wrong with the church that we were at and love those folks. Um, you know, the pastors there are great and the people there are great and I have no, was no, no issue. It was right. just wanting to look for a different approach to, to things, different ministry philosophy and things like that. So we, we went looking for a church and uh, found it was new song at the time. Yeah. New song fellowship. And so um, I was introduced to, to my good friend, pastor Jerry. You know, he was on staff at the time, and he's been a great friend ever since. But, yeah. you know, he really helped me to grow in my, he helped, he helped to form my understanding of the church's role in, in my calling. Up to that point, I would say it was kind of like wild and like un, unbridled, you know, yeah. like I knew like I wanted to let go and let God do something great, like put, you know, put me on a platform, put me in a classroom, like, like scrub toilets, like whatever you want me to do, man. Like, like just, just if it's for God, like, let, let, let me do it, you know? And so it was just that, that passion. I think that zeal that, that, you know, 
Pastor Jerry kind of saw in me and just was like, okay, like, like, come along, like, come along, right. like, like, watch and see, watch and see. And I took the, I took a class at our church. We still offer it today. It's, it's our Acts class. Yeah. The, the heralded Acts class. I yeah. love the Acts class. Yeah. I want to take it again. Oh man, it is so good. It changed my life. Like I realized, oh man, like church has a structure. God has a plan. There's a mission. There's a purpose. Like we, like there, there, there is a function that God has established with the church that had, that He desires it to not deviate from. Right. And again, truth, right? Like, like mm-hmm. that, that hunger for truth is there again. And so, I, I said to my wife, I said, "Listen, if I'm called to pastoral ministry, the elders of this church are going to call me to pastoral ministry." So I finished my college education and just began serving the church in any way that I could, right? Small group leader. Um, I remember we led our frontline ministry. You know, there was it was a ministry where we uh, delivered gift bag gift bags to people who I was visited. part of frontline. Yeah, yeah, you you and Lauren were. That's right. And so just whatever, you know, whatever, and then just just growing closer in my relationship with Pastor Jerry and, and becoming more of a friend to him and just watching how he um, how he did ministry and how he does things and so. Um, I had at that, through those years, um, you know, 2012, um, up till 2018, so six years. Yeah. I had said, listen, like, I'm cool, like working a regular job and just being a, a volunteer leader here. Like I get the best of both worlds. I get to lead and influence people and I get to provide for my family through this great job that I had. And I was, I was content. And I think that contentment is what the Lord was waiting for. And I had a few elders over the years um, who uh, will be a, a jewel in my heart for forever. Um, will always come alongside me and just say, like, your time's coming. Be ready. Time's coming. Be ready. Ah, man, I don't know. Like, it's okay. Like if it doesn't, like you know, we're a young church, and like I'm not looking for the next rung in the ladder, you know. Like I'm just I'm I'm happy to serve, you know. And I I didn't see what they saw, you know, but but they were calling me, you know. They they were identifying gifts to me. They were they were they were observing my gifts, and um, that's what I wanted, right? Yeah. And so when the opportunity to um, we had an an opportunity to to apply for and seek out campus pastor role with our Myerstown campus. And so, you know, submitted myself to that process, praying and fasting and, you know, um, a, lot, a lot of talks with my wife, yeah. you know, she was actually more like, let's go. It's, this is your, this is your opportunity. You know, she saw it before I did. Um, but it was that, it was that process that kind of got me where I am. How do you think your, your testimony uh, that you've shared on this episode helped you um, in in all your in all the uh, areas you you served in the church, but specifically in this pastoral role. How do you think that testimony helps you um, in that in that role or in those roles? That's a good question. I think it. Um, well, I shouldn't say. I think I know it gives me a measure of empathy. That um, not a lot surprises me, you know. And um, caring for people, you need to be you need to be empathetic. 
Jesus was the, the king of empathy. You know, Jesus looked upon people and wept, you know, for their, for their lack of faith. And Jesus, you know, um, empathized with people who were in low, low places in life. And so I think the empathy and the realization that, like, man, I did not, I am not here because of pedigree, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not in my DNA, you know. Um, my family tree is not, is not vibrant. <laughs> so um, I have not earned my way here, for sure. Uh, but I think it gives me a measure of humility, empathy and humility that, uh, you know, is necessary to be a, a good shepherd, a good pastor, a good leader. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know it all. I don't think I'll ever get to a place where I do know it all. I mean, you know, Colossians three and Ephesians four, you know, talk about, you know, as Christians, we, we are the only people that have a, a duality that exists within us. Mm-hmm. An old self and a new self, right? And so, I'm just like everybody else, where I'm growing in my understanding of what the old self is, you know, able to do and wants to do, and what the new self, you know, through the virtues of Jesus, desires to do. And so, you know, I'm. I, it keeps me humble. It keeps me uh, empathetic towards people who struggle with things that, you know, and, um, and so I think it helps from that perspective. Um, from a from a leadership standpoint, like I enjoy risks. Like I enjoy like, um, you know, being bold and, you know, um, doing doing um, courageous things. You know, um, my life can't won't be any worse than it was. You know, and so it's um, true. <laughs> yeah. So far, it's a good point. So far, Jesus has not let me down, and I I have faith and hope that He will not. You know, Scripture says He's the author and perfecter. He's the finisher of the things that he has begun in me. And so, um, so empathy, humility, I think boldness and, um, just, a a courageous kind of mindset, I think helps. So being the first pastor I've had on the show, um, on the, on the podcast, there, there's a couple questions I'd like to ask you in regards to, um, law enforcement. I, and the first one that I wanted to ask you was how should, how should people respond to an officer who acts in a sinful way? So, you know, I've said it on this podcast before that, you know, the police are not without sin. Um, obviously, the podcast exists to promote law enforcement with a, a biblical worldview because I believe there's precedent set in the word for that position or, or any position of authority, really. Um, and uh, but at the same time, there are times when those in those positions, those in law enforcement, do sin. What what is a proper response to that? Well, I think I think the question is good, and it's good. It, it will cultivate good discussion. I think yeah, I, I would ask you, you know, is this a situation that directly affects me and has impact on me personally? Or is it, is it indirect? Or, is, or are you looking? To... I think I think I would I would say more. Um, you know, just in our culture and 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 uh, you know, we see so many things on the news. Some of them are are misunderstood, but sure. there are those times where we do see officers doing something wrong. And yeah. those of us that are just seeing it, you know, what should be our our reaction to that, or or how we. Yeah, conduct how ourselves. we conduct ourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think first, first off, um, pray. 
um, you know, I was I was thinking about um, this question um, in preparation, and uh, I was thinking about uh, Psalm Psalm one nineteen verses one twenty one through one twenty eight. Um, the psalmist is making a righteous appeal to God, you know, essentially saying like God, like like there needs to be justice here, like there's wickedness in the land. And we need your justice. Like, are you going to show up? You know? And it's done in a righteous way. It's mm-hmm. done with the right end in mind. And so I think, I think one of the things that we, for the first thing we should do as believers is, is pray. Right? Trust that the Lord is sovereign. The Lord knows and has orchestrated all the affairs of men. Both, both the good things and the not-so-good things, the hard things, God is, is sovereignly working out and in control of and has it all under control, you know? Um, I would say, you know, and practically, as believers, I think we have, those are opportunities for us to show the very character of Jesus, right? And not that we are, we lay down, and we, or we bury our head, or we, um, uh, become ignorant. Uh, I think we lean in. We educate ourselves. We um, allow ourselves to be used in spaces and places where we can make a righteous appeal, mm-hmm. where we can say things like, "This is just. This is unjust." Right? I think we're we're, we're allowed to have that position. Um, I think the line gets blurry when we take it upon ourselves to be the very the very righteousness of God for him mm-hmm. and we don't righteously appeal we respond in anger we respond in ways that um, does not look like we have a true trust in a God who is in full control right uh, we incite others to join us you know, we we um we just have a behavior and a mindset that is not Christ-like. You know, Jesus hung on a cross and kept his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter writes in First Peter, uh, I think it's First Peter two. He writes about this relationship to authority, and he's writing to a church in the midst of like incredible persecution. Like Nero was was dipping people in tar and burning them on at on, on on a stake. Right. And he was what what was what was Peter encouraging them to do? Like be subject to authority, right? With everything in your control, live in a way that glorifies Jesus, um, brings honor to, to God, but places your full trust in him. And I think when we honor people uh, in authority, when even when they've done wrong, it's like it's it's like a it's like a a healing balm that does something supernatural that that wrath and anger just can't can't do mm-hmm. you know so i i think it sounds easy oh yeah <laughs> right so like i am subject to i see things that make me angry all the time mm-hmm. you know i and i think it's okay to be angry like we should be angry at murder we should be angry at war we should be angry anytime, you know, um, marriages fall apart. Those things should make us angry, mm-hmm. right? 
the the response to those things um i think is is so important as it relates to what does it do to people's perspective of jesus right uh, i think i think if we thought more about that it would give us pause yeah no i think that's a really good answer i, I you know a couple things that come to mind when you were talking is you know that i've i've had to work out just as doing the job of a police officer is the idea of you know personal offense doing my job and enforcing the law but not taking personal offense and not being so concerned about always um defending myself when people say negative things about me sometimes just be quiet um and you know i also think about humility um you know there you know there's there's a lep obviously like i have very strong opinions and and there's like i have this certain bent to like get after certain things but you know just that level of humility you know what are the motives behind that why am i doing that what am i trying to defend or hold up am i trying to point people to the hope that we have those mm. those sort of things so i think your answer kind of hits at those heart issues those motives um within us which which i think are really good um and then i think too the the answer is really good too about understanding um that there's the police officers you know when we when we talk about law enforcement it's established by god and and not the ones not just the ones that are good but also the ones that do wrong yeah you think and, about you think about you know in the old testament i mean king saul yeah i mean king saul was not a good king right god put him there right you think about daniel daniel being in a land among a people that were not his own like what, what you know what what did he do like he subjected himself in a respectful way Right, he wasn't. He didn't sin. Right, right. There's a distinction there. I, I'm not going to let a police officer lead me to sin, or ask me to sin, or or an authority figure to put me in a place where I sin against God. That's that's I can I can draw a line there. Right. You know, um, uh, you know. So I think we we the the line gets blurry in the mm -hmm. Western world because we're comfortable and we can control most things. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, I think we forget sometimes what these authorities are actually in place to do, right? Mm -hmm. Punish evil and praise good, mm -hmm. right? That's yeah. What, that's what Peter says, right? Punish evil, pra praise the good, right? And so um, I think when those, when those things don't happen, either they're reversed or there's corruption, I think we I think we have an opportunity to make righteous appeals, you know. But I think the first place you take your appeal is to the Lord. Yeah, I think that's take, a good word. Take your appeal to the Lord first, not to man. Yeah, yeah. And I also I would also like just like to commend like both you and Pastor Jerry have been uh, an example to me. Uh, you know, in those situations that have come up uh, in our world, have reached out to me on multiple occasions um, and asked me, hey, I got a question about this. 
you know, when there's confusion or there's uncertainty about what you're seeing or what's going on. Um, and that's always, that's always uh, meant, a, meant a lot to me. Um, second question that I wanted to ask a pastor. What, I mean, the way I posed this to you earlier was, what biblical advice would you have for Christian police officers? Um, which you can, you can answer that. Uh, but, but just generally, as a pastor, you know, what advice would you have for those men and women in law enforcement, maybe specifically for those that are believers, but maybe as a whole as well? Yeah, I would say um, the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, their role is is kind of a, a necessary evil. Yeah. Right? Um, and why do I say that? Because I say that because um, I, think, I think we're duped a little bit. We think that the norm is peace. You look at the, all of creation from the beginning till now. What is normative is conflict. Peace is actually more rare than conflict is. Yeah. And so, you know, um, authority is an institution by God. Why? Because of the conflict. And because otherwise it would be utter lawlessness. Because the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Yeah. And so I think my word to police officers would, you know, believer, not believer, you know, whoever, is that, um, you know, their, their, their role is to serve and protect, right? And um, I respect that. Yeah. Right? And I think for the most part, people get that. And it's unfortunate, I think, that in recent years, um, that ability has been quite hard. Mm-hmm. The lines have been blurred. What is serving? What what does protection look like? How much? It, well, it's too much protection. Not enough protection. You know. Right. And but at the end of the day, I want to be able to um, lay my head down at night, knowing that while I'm sleeping and in my most vulnerable state, mm-hmm. that you know, if anything were to happen, I have a, an authority structure in place to protect my family mm-hmm. you know and that's great and i i respect police officers i respect christian police officers to, to, to a christian police officer i would say um um you know a couple of things one just stay vigilant right stay vigilant stand firm upon the word of god stand firm upon your convictions and your relationship in jesus um you are in a very uh, unique role as a police officer it is a very unique time to be a police officer and to be a christian police officer you know i think they 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 have they need to be uh, vigilant humble but shepherded mm-hmm. i would you know you know i remember remember um numerous times even before i was a pastor just being concerned for you concerned for your heart mm-hmm. and just all of the craziness that it's exposed to mm-hmm. you know and um who, like who more to be like shepherded visible loved cared for because you, you carry a serious weight mm-hmm. and so it takes vigilance yeah right but not a, but not a, a self-made vigilance like like the scriptures talk about standing firm you know um uh and 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 holding fast right to your confession of hope right 
Like those are those are things that strengthen the soul, strengthen the heart, right? And which inevitably strengthens the person. Um, but I think humility uh, is also important because, man, you know, at any given point, right? Like things could could turn for the worst. Yeah. Right. There could be all sorts of you could fill in the blank. There's all sorts of things that have happened over the years that uh, in our world that um, have put police officers in really precarious situations. But then last thing, you know, the shepherding piece. Um, I can imagine it would be hard for a police officer to have a place in their world where they are fully um, candid. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And fully known. And so what happens when you, when you, when you miss that? You... It's like carrying a, a, a backpack full of bricks. Eventually, you got to dump it somewhere. Yeah. Right? And so police officers, it's, you know, it's not counseling. It's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not uh, therapy. It's, it's just, it's being shepherded. Right? Like, if I was a police officer, I would have a regular spot on my calendar where I could dump it all with someone I trust and be prayed for pray with someone, um, be able to talk about hard things and just clean up, clean the clutter out. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that's important. Yeah. No, I, th- I, uh, I think all those are really good points. I really like what you said that police work is actually a necessary evil for us as believers who believe that one day there will be perfect peace that you know, the Prince of Peace will come back. Um, yeah, and we're, we're kind of just standing in the gap there a little bit until that, that happens. Um, you know, just trying to, yeah, we're, we're, we've been placed into a position, law enforcement has been placed into a position in an imperfect world, and imperfect people fill the profession. It's, it's you know, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's, it's just what the world is. Uh, but we, we do have hope in a, in a Prince of Peace. Yeah. I think that's a good word. And that's why, and that's why I say be, be visible, be, be, um, be shepherded because it, it would be so, I can imagine it's so easy for a police officer to think, well, no one would understand. Mm-hmm. I'm expected to be more perfect than I know that I am. And like, you, you can't walk around with that luggage on your heart for too long before it starts to create some things, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and like I spoke to earlier, that, that duality, that, that old self, new self, the, the putting off of the old, the putting on the new, like, how do you do that as a police officer? If you're not, you know, in, in a place where you're, you're vulnerable, but safe. Right. You know, yourself, and, safe yourself. You know? Yeah. And I just think those those places are very limited. Yeah. Very yeah. limited. And I think the church um, should be one of those places. I think, you know, I can think of specific people um, in our church, one specifically that you know very well, that he's that guy for me, you Good. know? Yeah. And, and, you know, but yeah, for those that don't have that, that can be... It's very difficult, but Pastor Nate, it was awesome having you on. Thank you so much for coming on and talking. 
um, and encouraging uh, people with your testimony and encouraging police officers. I always give the last word to my guests. So last word, Pastor Nate. Last word, man. I was, I was thinking, man, do I, do I come with something serious or something funny? <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, if I'm given an opportunity, if this is truly a last word, what would I want it to be? And um, I think I would say to anyone listening, you know, if, you're, if you have been listening for any length of time and you keep hearing this message of hope, this message of reconciliation, this message of being united with your Creator, and you have thoughts or questions or doubts or fears, you know, I hope, hope that my story um, at least is another notch in the right direction of getting you to a place of, of trusting Jesus as, as a Savior. You know, one of, the, one of the most vulnerable things that we can do as human beings is admit that we need a Savior, right? And it's not, it's not a, it's not an, like, it's not a, you know, when we think of saving, we think of, I mean, I'm drowning, there's a life raft, like, the, the house is burning, if I don't get out, I'll die. Like, like, yes, it's that significant, but you have to understand that, that the salvation that is being spoken of here is, is a spiritual one. Mm-hmm. And um, I would just want people to know that uh, you know, there, there is hope. And I once had no hope. I once, you know, dwelt in darkness. I once was blind to even the error of my own way. And it took the faithful commitment of a, of a friend to show me that there was something greater than myself out there. Right? There's a creator who has this all figured out. You know? Um, I, I look at my kids and I, am, I marvel at what, certainly what they do that I have influenced. But what I marvel at most is the things that they do that I've had no control over. It reminds me that there's a God who has created every single one of us and has uniquely wired us with a story. And he's looking, he's desiring to unite himself with that story and show you that he's the author of it. You know? And so, you know, the last word is, man, Jesus, Jesus reigns, man. And uh, if, you're, if you're out there listening and you got questions, you're curious, you have, you have fears, doubts, wonders, concerns, anything like that, man, you know, Mission Church is on Lampeter Road. My office is there. I'd be happy to talk with anybody who, who's, who's willing to, to come over. Uh, I'm sure you'd be willing to talk with anybody. Absolutely. I know you've been a huge proponent of reaching out to people or people re- re- reaching out to you. Um, but yeah, the last word, man, is, is the gospel. It's, 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 it's what's going to have the last word. Jesus is going to come back and have the last word. You know, and Jesus is the gospel. Like you know, Peter, uh, Paul calls it the gospel of God. Not because it's a message that comes from God, but because it, it, is, it, is, the, it is by very nature God himself. Right? Yeah. And so you know, we are being communicated. What we are coming to know is not just a message, but a creator, you know? And so, yeah, the last word, man, it's, it's the gospel. Pastor Nate, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. You bet, dude. Thanks for having me. Q-do-do. Q-do-do.
Cue the Dip recognizes officers who kick up the dust in pursuit. All officers know suffering and sacrifice that comes with a job, and yet some have paid the ultimate sacrifice. This episode's Cue the Dip hits close to home and involves officers in Lebanon City, which is just north of Lancaster County, where I live and work. It highlights the ultimate heroic sacrifice of Lebanon City Police Lieutenant William Lebo and the heroic actions of Officer Derek Underkoffler, Officer McCarrick, and Officer Adams displayed on the 31st of March, 2022. On that call, officers were dispatched to a residence regarding a suspect with mental health problems who had broken into a family member's house. A family member called the police. Police approached the rear door with Lieutenant Lebo in the, he- in the lead, holding a police shield. Commands were given to the suspect to come to the rear door. The suspect did, but concealed his hands. He refused all police commands, and then suddenly, producing a handgun, and fired three rounds, striking both Lieutenant Lebo and Officer Underkoffler. The suspect continued to fire on police even after being wounded. Officer McCarrick and Officer Adams were able to return fire, stopping the threat and killing the suspect. Officer McCarrick carried Officer Underkoffler to safety and then began to treat Lieutenant Lebo. Officer Adams was also struck by gunfire and, though seriously injured, called for help via radio. Officer Adams has been treated and released from the hospital. I believe at the time of this recording, Officer Underkoffler still remains in the hospital. Uh, Lieutenant Lebo was shot twice by the suspect and died. Lieutenant Lebo was a 40-year veteran of Lebanon City PD. He was set to retire on May 1st of this year. Lieutenant Lebo paid the ultimate sacrifice, losing his life when a person in need called for help. He didn't have to be at that scene. 40 years on the job, he could have been gone. A lieutenant with only a month to go to retirement, he didn't need to be there, and he didn't need to be the first in the door. But he was. He led. He sacrificed his life. For that, Lieutenant Lebo is remembered in this week's Cue the Dip segment. And the heroic actions of Officer Underkoffler, McCarrick, and Adams are also recognized for kicking up the dust in pursuit despite great loss and pain and suffering. My condolences to the Lebo family. May God bless them and keep them in this difficult time. This Cue the Dip brings me to the word sacrifice. Sacrifice. It's a word in our vocabulary, but not one we pause and think about very often. We easily breeze by it. It's a known word by all, but its weight is felt differently by all, especially those in law enforcement. If you look in a dictionary, you can find several definitions. Sacrifice, an act of slaughtering an animal or person or surrendering a possession as an offering to God. Sacrifice. An animal, person, or object offered in a sacrifice. Sacrifice. An act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. We, as a society, need the sacrifices of men and women in law enforcement. We don't want them, but sometimes we need their blood to be shed on our behalf. Pastor Nate rightly said that law enforcement is a necessary evil because conflict on this side of heaven is normal. Peace, true peace, will not be known until Jesus reigns over the new heaven and the new earth. And until that moment, God has established his servants, his, mis- his ministers, his diakonos, if you will, as a grace to hold those who do evil in check as best as they can in this world and to praise and lift up those who do good. 
And in that calling is great sacrifice. All people must sacrifice things of value for the sake of things more important. It's part of life on this earth. But few take time to know or think about the sacrifice of the men and women in law enforcement. The police are paid for not only what they do, but what they may be asked to do. For a police officer is called the sacrifice for people. And within that sacrifice are many struggles and many smaller sacrifices. They include stress levels which affect physical health, from heart palpitations to high blood pressure, headaches, muscle pain. Many officers suffer from health problems brought on by the stress from the job. Vigilance, which exhausts, constantly on alert. Knowing that complacency can be deadly and attempting to be in the moment and alert when interacting with anyone. Watch the hands. Look at the waistband. Look behind you. Where's my cover? Command the scene. Control the movements. Maintain advantageous positioning. Vigilance. Fear management. The ability to manage adrenaline and fear to control your emotions so you can communicate clearly and think correctly. Recognizing that you will be afraid, but how do you work through that fear? And then the battle to be present. Emotionally spent from walking through the drama pain, suffering, and sins with strangers, and the fight to have the energy to be present with your own spouse and children. Exhausted from shift work, rotations, stress, vigilance, and adrenaline, and fighting to be emotionally and mentally present with your family. Many officers battle to love their family more than solitude, the television, or the bottom of the battle. And then the struggle in knowing that injury, or the ultimate sacrifice of giving your life, may be God's call on your life that you may be called to shed blood on behalf of another. This sacrifice is rarely talked about among officers or with their families, but it's a gnawing reality that is always there. For spouses, it becomes paralyzing reality when the phone rings late at night or uniformed officers knock on the door. Sacrifice. All these struggles are part of the sacrifice. And an officer is a close friend with sacrifice. Barely mentioned, Quickly brushed off in uncomfortable moments when others thank you for your service, but known. Sacrifice known in the fellowship of suffering with other officers. It doesn't need to be talked about, but it's understood quietly among them and their families. And the sacrifices are not in vain. They are made to help many, some of which love the police and some of who don't and actually hate the police. Regardless, the sacrifices are made. As much as these sacrifices matter, and as much as we should praise them and highlight them, They pale in comparison to the sacrifice of Jesus. For while the sacrifices of officers are for many, the sacrifice of Jesus is for all. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist, the man who prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus when uh, he was on this earth, sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And how did Jesus take away those sins? He took them away as the Lamb of God the Lamb of God that was sacrificed on behalf of the whole world. Approximately 700 years before Jesus was born, the book of Isaiah prophesied about the sacrifice Jesus would make. In Isaiah 53, 7-12, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. 
His grave was assigned with wicked people, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. A lamb led the slaughter. He bore the sins of many. This passage in Isaiah contains many prophecies. 700 years before uh, Jesus walked the earth and had his ministry and was born, this passage in Isaiah talks about how he would die and specific things that happened when Jesus was crucified and when he died. And so Jesus has paid a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and yet many will not receive this gift. The Bible makes it clear that the wages of sin is death and eternal separation from God the Father. But Jesus died for these sins. He died for your sins and he died for my sins. He died to make the way, the only way. He sacrificed his life so that we can have eternal life. How? How can we get this peace? How do we get this eternal life? How do we have peace with God despite our sin, which he hates? How did Pastor Nate move from darkness into light? He confessed and he believed. You heard his testimony of that moment when he recognized his sin, filled with grief over who he was and what he deserved, and then recognizing who Jesus was, the Lamb of God who took away his sin and provided the way to have peace with God. By grace, through faith in Jesus, a gift available to all, but only accepted by some. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart he rose from the dead, and you too can be saved. If you're in law enforcement, I am keenly aware of your suffering and sacrifice. The weight feels unbearable at times. I've been there. It can get very dark, but joy can come in the morning. For there is one who has paid for all the pain. He knows your suffering, for he himself has suffered. For those who know and love a police officer, just give them the space to talk. Don't judge or correct or try to convince. Just listen. In a culture that wants to desperately be tolerant of anything and anyone, we sure do a bad job being tolerant of our police or simply trying to understand them. So be that person. Give them a seat at the table to talk. Understand that the sacrifice you need them to make, the sacrifice you need them to make, carries a weight that has lifelong effects. Wherever you find yourself, whether you wear the badge or love someone who does, Kick up the dust in pursuit.